Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Sandrine Sanos, author of The Aesthetics of Hate, Far-Right Intellectuals, Antisemitism, and Gender in 1930s France. The book was published by Stanford University Press earlier this year. Hi there, Sandrine. Hello, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Maybe you could get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to the to the research interests and issues that you explore in the book. Well, I guess I should first explain that this um, this book really is the result of a long-standing interest that I'd started as an undergraduate thesis, actually. Um, I had always been very much enamored of both history and literature, and the question that started me on this many years ago um, as a young, untrained undergraduate was how to think the question of intellectuals and writers who are um, celebrated and recognized as such and who engage in ideas that we might find politically repugnant and how to address that question, and in general, how to think of a particular moment when intellectuals um, had a very prominent place in uh, the French Republic of letters and on political issues, and how those um, far-right or for some fascist intellectuals came to occupy uh, that place. So while this really started as an undergraduate thesis, um, I think what was really important for me um, as I was trained is the ways in which my training in women's history, gender history, and feminist theory provided me with the tools and a different set of questions to engage this particular topic so that when I returned to it years later, I was interesting in mining um, these these authors and asking a different set of questions, thinking about gender and sexuality as categories of meaning and therefore trying to ask differently or to read differently what is really a very well-mined topic that has been extensively written about. Well, I'm, I'm going to want to ask you a bit more um, as we continue to talk about the different kinds of interventions that you're making um, along those lines in relationship to previous scholarship. So you did your undergraduate work in France. You have sort of an international educational background, yeah? Um, indeed, indeed. From having um, spent a childhood abroad, I had learned um, some English. Um, I'm from a French family. Um, and then in France was um, was able to get an international school and have a bilingual education, which means that I actually did my undergraduate, my BA at Oxford, um, studying uh, British and European history and continued um, in London with an MA in women's history. Mm. 
Now, upon my return to France, where I, um, I started working with Francine Muel-Dreyfus, who's published on Vichy, L'Eternel Féminin, it became very evident to me that in order to do uh, gender history and to be able to uh, find the kind of community of historians um, and thinkers I was interested um, in, in discussing these issues with, I would have to leave France where women's and gender history, as is well known, has not been really fully institutionalized and, um, and came to the United States where mm -hmm. I came to do my PhD work in European history and gender and sexuality. This is an interesting position as someone whose background is French that you came to study France in you know, the United States and, and now teach it in Texas. Indeed, indeed. Um, it is a rather unusual trajectory. Um, but I do think there is, for, for me, there is a certain, um, having the position of being, being immersed in different intellectual traditions, the French, a British, an American one, I think has been, um, incredibly valuable in that it, uh, it has demanded that I ask a I reflect on what seemed very familiar to me growing up in France and um, with French literature and, and French history to, to think of a different set of questions, mm -hmm. to interpret differently. And I do think, in part, the possibility of engaging in, in um, a certain form of theorized history, um, of history of gender, is also what I was able to have access to and, and to be trained in by coming to the United States. It's really interesting to have all of those different perspectives on, the, on, on doing this kind of work. So let's talk about the, the, the book more uh, in more detail now. Um, so you, you're dealing throughout with this small, you identify them as a sort of small heterogeneous group uh, of men. Uh, who you refer to as the Young New Right, a group with this wide intellectual and political influence. And you talk about this uh, group as a, as a kind of intellectual movement tied together, and I'm quoting you here, by their definition of Frenchness um, and through the language of gender, sexuality, and race. So I'd just like you to say a little bit about what this group of men, who they were, um, what makes referring to them as the Young New Right uh, significant, you know, how do you situate these intellectuals in relationship uh, to their contemporaries? What was young about them? What was new about them? What was what was right about them? Um, this the the jeune droite. I've actually. Um, inadequately translated. It's a rather clunky translation, um, but it was important to me to give a sense of how these men thought of themselves as part of this new generation. Um, and in part, this is a collection of young men, many of whom were trained at l'école normale supérieure, some of the highest elite institutions um, in France, and who were, uh, from a young age, um, in involved in the world of literature and who became passionate um, about the world of politics, most notably because many of them started their careers in the 1920s, late 1920s, within the fold of the monarchist, ultranationalist, anti-Semitic and anti-Republican organization, Lection Francaise. Um, mm. And that's where they started their career as journalists, as aspiring novelists, as um, intellectuals in the making. Interestingly, they, they had a very keen sense of themselves as being 
younger than their forefathers of having something else to offer because their age was new in the wake of World War One and everything that had changed. It wasn't just the experience of death, mutilation. It was also new technology, um, cultural novelties um, such as jazz, debates on what the fate of literature might hold, the, um, the success of cinema, all of that that captivated them. Um, and in 1930, they turned 30 and thought of themselves as an avant-garde, as a group that had a sense of a radical politics and a sense of a radical, uh, the need to be a radical intellectual in ways that those before them hadn't been and those in, around them weren't, especially for those on the left that they uh, saw themselves as being staunchly opposed to. Um, so the jeune droite, in a sense, is a term that came into being from from within, from themselves, and has become the usual way historians refer to, to this particular group of intellectuals that came to prominence in press and in writings um, in the 1930s. Some of them, like Thierry Monnier, received academic prizes, and others were well-respected within the literary world at that particular time. So they weren't, they weren't marginal to the hmm. literary and political world. And I, and I think that's important to keep in mind. Well, and, you know, you start talking about, you just said this thing about how they turned 30 in, in, in 1930, or, you know, roughly speaking. And, you know, the book really is a book about the 30s, even though you situate these writers and intellectuals within a broader context, a broader historical context. And I'm just wondering about that. I mean, I don't know if it's just my imagination, but it seems to me that in the last few years, there's really been this kind of, I don't know if it's renewed or if it's just a new focus on the 30s in particular, mm -hmm. not just the interwar years, but the 1930s. Um, and I wanted to ask you to say a little bit more about what that means for you in the book, that you, you talk about the 30s sort of as a, as a period with uh, certain characteristics and features across the decade, but also as one in which there is change over time. So how can the, the, the period can't be understood as a homogeneous block, but you know, what, what does the decade mean to you? How does it fit into the interwar? How does it figure as a kind of pre the decade prior to Vichy? What, what do mm -hmm. those things mean for you? Well, I, I think I'm part of a, of a number of historians who, in the wake of really great works that came out that dealt with the in, interwar, that was really the immediate post-World War I period, and mostly looking at the after effects of World War I, were interested in revisiting that particular decade as no longer subsumed, as merely a prelude to Vichy, mm. and, and in some theological narrative that always saw Vichy at, as the end point, but was interested in engaging some of the debates, discussions, developments that took place in the 1930s that were articulated around politics and culture. And those, I think, shaped um, political discourse and um, the literary world in France, most notably um, because of a set of events such as the coming to power of the Popular Front, the Spanish Civil War, but also to think of France in broader term. And I think that also is the result of the great works in colonial history um, that have asked us to think about French history differently. So if you think about these intellectuals as always looking outside of France, outside of the metropole to the colonies, and the 30s has been termed the colonial decade, 
decade um, in, in during in France. Um, Whether if we think if we remember about the 1931 colonial um, mm. exhibit, but also they looked outside because certainly in the case of the intellectuals I I, um, I examine and I read, they looked to other European countries. They were incredibly eager to engage in international politics in the emergence of fascism and their criti uh, criticism of Soviet communism. So to think about the 30s meant, meant at once um, disrupting the ways in which the 30s had been obscured somewhat by works on post-war, post-World War One. France and Vichy bookended in such a way, mm -hmm. but also to capture uh, what was most distinctive chronologically to, to return and give the 1930s its sense to pay to pay greater attention to the contingency of events and ideas to the ways in which things unfolded and in that i also think more recently historians have also been moving away from thinking of vichy as a radical rupture and traced um, the continuities of uh, thought, intellectuals, or politics that first emerged in the 1930s and that at the end of World War II find their way again in the world of literature and politics um, and, and resurface in very interesting way. And while my book doesn't deal with that longer genealogy, I do think it's part of that effort to rethink chronology or our conventional way of thinking of the chronology of France. I want to ask you something about the, the title of the book. It's sort of an obvious question, but I think it's, uh, it's one that I, I, I think gets to the heart of what you're doing here. Um, this idea of the aesthetics of hate and what that means. I mean, it's kind of a, a wonderful title, um, but what does that mean to you? How does it speak to the project that's, that's at the heart of this book? Well, it speaks to the ways in which um, I, I'm firmly convinced that to think about a politics of hate means, and certainly in the case of the 1930s, in the case of the far right and fascism in those years, means taking seriously the ways in which many of these intellectuals, writers, thinkers were involved and eager to offer not just a political vision, but an aesthetic vision, which to them meant thinking about how literature had something to offer to renew what it meant to be French. To, that French citizenship wasn't just a matter of political existence, but a matter of culture. Mm -hmm. And I think that work has been done in um, for Nazi Germany with attention paid to the ways in which this Nazi vision of the world involve a ways of imagining that world, of fantasizing in architecture, in literature, in um, cultural rituals, how people should um, be, should become, should renew themselves into a modern fascist or Nazi person. 
But no attention until then, I think, had been paid to the particular aesthetic claims of this group of far-right intellectuals. So on the one hand, literary scholars had read many of these intellectuals who I've said were also novelists, um, essayists, and had read their works, their published works, but then without somewhat dehistoricizing them, not really paying attention to their larger uh larger writings, because those were incredibly prolific writers. They wrote in many places and and incessantly through that decade. On the other hand, historians, because these were far-right intellectuals and authors, tended not to take seriously the claims of these intellectuals to offer a different aesthetic vision, a different way to think about literature, to think about art or the world of poetry, and instead dismiss them as either mediocre novelists um, or uh, tended not to um, not to read those literary works along mm. the the more traditional political writing. So, to me, the aesthetics of way hate is a way of signalling the need. Um, to read both politics and aesthetics together when engaging these particular kinds of thinkers. Well, and you make this important point, I think, in the introduction that, well, and throughout the book, that literature in, in, in modern France is a deeply political matter. And you talk about this, um, not just in terms of you re- reading uh, all these sorts of texts, but that you, you talk about the book as this kind of synthetic approach um, and I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about, more about that. You, you did say something earlier about your, your background and how you came to this project. Um, sure. Do you think of this as an interdisciplinary book? Do you think of yourself as an interdisciplinary scholar? Um, I do in so far that I, I, I think as a historian, um, my engagement with both the topic of my book and the ways in which to um, approach this topic has been very much inspired by the kinds of work that have been produced in different disciplines. I've mentioned the um, great work um, of feminist theory, but also literary theory. So because of my enduring interest in literature, I, I've always been eager and curious to see how we as historians can think of literature and culture differently. We, we tend to have a habit of reading for content or to use literature as illustration without necessarily asking questions of form, of genre, of the very nature of the texts we read, or to read texts differently, which is why I see my book as necessarily engaging different fields. Um, As I've said before, in part, that is because on this topic, there's been a real division between literary scholars who throughout the 1990s wrote really incredibly insightful work on many of these far-right intellectuals that historians tended not to read. And on the other hand, um, as I've said, historians tended to ignore this scholarship and not take seriously the work of literature, just as literary scholars tended for a historian not to situate these thinkers, these texts and these ideas in the particular historical context in which they they emerge. So while this might read more as a an intellectual history of sorts, um, I do believe 
it's an engagement that necessarily speaks to different ways, different disciplinary ways we have to approach a topic. So I see this book more as an interpretive gesture, one that is about, that asks the question, how might we read familiar problems differently, as opposed to being a book that offers something um, that is completely archivally new, um, which it is not. I, I work on fairly well-known writers. Um, mm -hmm. I read differently in different sources together, but it, this was very much an engagement as much with how we do the history of these intellectuals, as well as trying to analyze the kind of political thought they offered. You say at some point, Sandrine, that this is not a history of fascism per se, but it, it certainly contributes to, to the history of fascism. And I wonder, both in France and perhaps beyond, and I wonder if you have thoughts about that, that how this book is and isn't a history of fascism. Well, in part, it was, um, I wrote in my introduction that this is not a history of fascism because of the ways in which the, the debate of whether or not there was a French fascism is one that has dominated the historiography. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to suggest is rather than presume a certain fascism, or rather than um, getting tangled up in questions of definition or what constitutes a proper fascism or not, I was interested in examining the kind of political thought they offered and whether or not they imagined themselves to be fascists, how they related to it. So um, part of what was important to pay attention to is how this group splits in part around the question of fascism. Um, a group um, around one newspaper after 1937-38 engages in a much more virulent anti-Semitism and um, is especially um, enamored of Belgian and Italian fascism. And, and some of its most famous writers start arguing for the need of a distinct, distinctively French fascism, while others... Um, were more circumspect and were more ambivalent. So while fascism, as a general European movement that took different forms in different countries, fascinated these men, they elaborated different kinds of responses to it. And I was interested in seeing the ways in which their vision of Frenchness fuel their particular political vision. Um, and in that sense, I think it does speak to a long tradition of really important works on fascism from Paxton and more recently works on the Quad Fouche, um, by Kevin Passmore or even Sam Kalman. And more recently, I think there's a developing, uh, French a uh, French school that is also revisiting that very question um, more uh, more specifically around Jacques Doriot and his particular political trajectory. But as such, it was a way of, again, trying to avoid the weight of these debates in order to trace how they came to the positions they, they occupied in the late 1930s. Of course, you know, throughout the, the book, Sandrine, gender and sexuality, well, and race also, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment, but gender and sexuality play central roles in your analysis in, 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 in 
the the chapters of the book. And you at some point say something about, you know, the ways that these far right intellectuals, the far right um, anti-Semitic and fascist ideologies sort of mind and use this language of perversion, gender and sexuality as foundations for their for their politics. And I'm wondering if you could say more about that and how that works throughout the book and the ways that you are rereading these authors and contributing to an analysis that puts gender and sexuality sort of more at the center of an analysis of, of this political moment. Well, I think it's definitely at the center. I mean, part, um, part of what I'm trying to do is to show how gender and sexuality was the way, the prism, uh, those were the prism through which these intellectuals mapped out their world, what it meant to be a French citizen, what it meant to be a French man, that ultimately part of their criticism, part of their denunciation of their world was a language about an imagined loss of virile masculinity that they thought should be a foundation of what it meant to be French. And then to trace the ways in which that was then tied to their hierarchical ordering of the French Empire and who belonged to France and who was suspect because deviant because perverse um, and the language through which they express these ideas regarding decadence and decadence of their world um, the, um, had to do with their imagination of the nation as a gendered body and of the uh, citizenry as one that was anchored around masculinity. I mean, this has a long history in France. It, it's not... Um, in, in and of itself, completely new. And other historians have traced this really eloquently in showing how um, that imagination of masculinity has been tied to visions of citizenship, visions of intellectuals from the 19th century onwards. Um, but bafflingly, that had never been the focus of the political history of the 1930s and specifically of these far-right intellectuals. Some literary scholars had already paved the way. Um, I'm thinking of the word of Alice Kaplan or Rosemary Scullions, but yet it remained completely anecdotal to the ways in which people accounted and explained far-right thinking in those particular years. So to think of being French to these intellectuals meant to, um, to understand that one needed to be um, in control, um, able to be um, the head of the family that was in and of also the foundation of a larger organic community that then would find translation into a proper political regime, which to them was certainly not the parliamentary regime um, that then became enshrined in the popular front and that they associated with foreigners, with uh, Jews, of course, but also with homosexuals who were somewhat dangerous um, to those who didn't uh, didn't express a proper um, proper masculine behavior and were effeminate, and to restore a, a seemingly endangered masculinity. Um, now, thinking about that is, of course. Um, 
requires paying attention to the kind of stereotypes, images, fantasies that they used in describing what was wrong with France in the 1930s and how that should be uh, resolved mm -hmm. and uh, extirpated. When you're doing these, this sort of reading of these intellectuals um, and writers, you, and this kind of comes back to this question of interdisciplinarity, you draw on certain theoretical models and engaged concepts. And I'd just like to ask you to explain them a little bit for us. The, this, this notion of th these things that come up again and again throughout the book, this notion of abjection as central to these authors, the idea of dissolution, and this uh, notion of a, of a crisis, you know, political crisis, cultural, civilizational crisis. Um, what do those terms mean for you and how are you using them in the book? Well, um, ab abjection became quite a central term at the time when I was um, reading these intellectuals' writing. I was very much struck by the obsessive way in which they constantly talked about the disgust they experienced with what they saw around them, France being overrun by these foreigners, by these Jews, by these um, terribly um, misled youth, misled by communism and by the laws of, of um, modern um, society, and, and nausea. And, and, they, and they also used the, the language of abjection. And, and yet, no one had really paid attention to these. Um, and and were, those were usually read as the mere rhetorical flourishes of a far-right prose, um, mm. a manner of expressing their political dissatisfaction. So in part, um, as I was also reading a number of theorists, most notably um, psychoanalytic theorists, um, I... I, w I wondered how this, these feelings, or what we might call affects, were, might actually be central to the ways in which they, they elaborated their political critique. And in part, that is because they also spoke at the same time of literature in terms of transcendence, that art and literature and poetry specifically could be the place that would allow them to overcome pervasive sense of abjection, of disgust. And abjection means a disgust, not just at, uh, at those people, those things outside of you, but one that they felt within themselves. And that was an interesting, an interesting conundrum to, to think about. Um, and as I was reading Kristeva, who's written on abjection, I was also struck by the fact that Kristeva, who theorizes this notion of abjection, um, that is um, something that is constitu constitutive of us, of, um, of our sense of self, and yet that we all need to project outside, that Kristeva herself was turning to writers from the 1930s in order to explain and theorize mm -hmm. abjection. So taking those terms seriously meant really thinking about the ways in which the language of emotions actually had political meaning in their vision of the world, that because they saw their world as abject and themselves as being tainted and contaminated by these supposedly deviant, perverse, um, and abhorrent figures such as the Jew, um, such as the homosexual, or such as um, such as even the un unruly colonial subjects, that you needed to enforce order, hierarchy, 
and authority. And that is where they proclaim the need for a far-right politics that would do away with dem uh, democracy. And that would restore some form of authoritarian government that would also allow for uh, the restoration of culture and literature that would properly, properly ensure purity and regeneration. And, and this is why, in part, I, I focused on this. And that is also related to the notion of crisis, because in part would allow them to claim that one needed to enact a different revolution uh, um, and develop a new insurgency was the fact that they thought that um, the 1930s were a time of crisis, that Everything had been tainted by these foreign forces and therefore needed to be purified and renewed. And in that, that that's where we can see they both borrowed from a long-standing far-right tradition, but also did something new with it because the Action Francaise and those before them had never expressed their obsession with decadence in such terms. Um, and while some of these intellectuals never hesitated to write that we are now abject, we are disgusting because we've been tainted by Jews and by foreigners, never before would have um, all the far-right writers claimed that France itself, the nation and its citizens, had been tainted. This was always something that was exterior to them. Um, and that seemed important in trying to explicate the logic of and the, dis the distinctiveness of what they were trying to map out and why we should pay attention to this particular far-right vision. We, we've been talking, something about this group of writers and this sort of collection of ideas and what's at stake in all of this. And, you know, you do have these two chapters in the book that are focused on two writers in particular, two intellectuals and writers in particular, Maurice Blanchot and Louis-Ferdinand uh, Céline. And um, I'm just wondering if we could talk now a little bit about those two figures. Um, and you talk about a number of intellectuals and writers in, in the book, but those two really stand out as uh, figures who you pay uh, more extensive, you, you deal with more extensively in the book. Yes, and, um, and those were rather um, exciting but difficult chapters to write. Um, I, I was drawn to developing those two chapters because both Maurice Blanchot and Louis-Ferdinand Céline are canonical figures in the literary world, in, in, in the French literary world. Blanchot is known as um, the author of... Um, abstract, philosophically inclined literary criticism that after 1945 inspired thinkers such as Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida and who has been a, a really important figure for, um, for post-war thought. Um, Céline, of course, is one of the most celebrated novelists of 20th century France, mm -hmm. one who is credited with having reinvented the very ways in which one wrote the novel of being able to fictionalize the experience of downtrodden humanity, as one of his uh, reviewers wrote at the time, and, and offering this bleak, pessimistic, yet very powerful vision of the world, um, both in what he wrote and how he wrote about it. Now, the reason I turn to these two is because in some sense, 
they both represent a fundamental question I was interested in addressing, which is, what do we do when some of our most um, admired canonical figures in literature, in philosophy, seem to be tainted by um, a questionable or repugnant politics? I mean, this is a question that continues to ripple today um, that, of course, captivated many with, for instance, the case of uh, philosopher Heidegger or even uh, critic Paul de Man. Um, mm. So, the, it really they pose a question of the relationship of aesthetics and politics in both of their cases, and both were attached to these two different groups of intellectuals. So Blanchot himself wrote in the 1930s in some of the far right newspapers and was part of this group that was the young new right that I explore and try and trace. While Celine, while not affiliated with this other newspaper, nonetheless suddenly became champion by this group of fiercely anti-Semitic and self-titled French fascists uh, in Je suis partout, specifically. So in that sense, um, I was interested in exploring the writings they, um, they offered in the 30s, paying attention to the ways in which aesthetics and politics were linked in their work. So... Um, to avoid the polemics that have um, haunted both of these authors, um, what I try to do is to trace, in the case of Blanchot, both his political journalism as well as his literary criticism, and to trace the ways in which he was both embedded in this particular far-right world and the manner in which he subsequently detach himself and how and how he subsequently also offered an explanation for a very peculiar trajectory that has fascinated many how to begin as a young man in far-right journalism in the 1930s to end up in the 1950s as um, a close companion of Bataille um, co-authoring with Eunice Mascolo, the Manifest des 121, proclaiming um, the right to insurgency um, in, in the face of the Algerian war and, and the right for Algerian independence from the far right to the far left, to give a, mm. a simple summary. Well, Céline um, has also been read, again, with critics um, separating out his anti-Semitic pamphlets, which he published in 1937 um, and 38, as, as if they were completely divorced from the rest of his literary production. And indeed, his widow um, forbade the reissue. So it also creates the sense of an archival absence. And instead, part of what I try to show is the ways in which Celine's anti-Semitic pamphlets did not suddenly appear, but that they came as a result of his obsession with race, with the race of Frenchness, his obsession with sexed bodies and with a precarious masculinity. And that in many ways, you can argue that Celine fictionalized this French masculinity, both in, in his first novel, Journey to the End of the Night, in his pamphlets in the mid-1930s and continued that work on. And that was the fascinating problem because I think in 
in the case of Blanchot and Céline, it makes for more complicated figures. It, it makes for more interesting questions for us to explore. And I think the place and the relationship of fascism to modernism, anti-Semitism to European culture, but also anti-Semitism to larger uh, colonial racism in the period is something we, we should engage in. Um, my intent was never to polemically charge either but instead to show the ways in which they were very much part of this particular moment and participated in a vision, a political vision that also meant a, a, a vision of literature um, in that way. And, and if Blanchot, after World War II, um, was very much haunted by his earlier involvement and, and wrote about the shame he experienced, um, he's a fascinating and important example to oppose to Céline, who never renounced and never denied the force of his own anti-Semitic writings um, after, after 1945. It is interesting how you sort of use these two figures and, and that contrast to kind of explore some of the issues and tensions in the post-45 period. And, you know, earlier you were saying that you know, the, there's this kind of resistance in, in recent scholarship to reducing the 1930s to just this sort of precursor to, to Vichy. At the same time, I think that the, the book does tell us something or teach us something about the the Vichy period, but also the kind of uh, post-45 period and the, I guess the coming to terms with the past that France goes through in, in those post-war years. And, and I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Well, Insofar that I think, um, paying to me, paying close uh, attention to the ways in which authors like Blanchot or Céline or even others um, um, like Meunier wrote and theorized literature and um, offered a different vision of what it meant to be French in the 1930s also demands that we look at... Um, the, the remapping of the literary, literary and political world after 1945, the strategies that these authors used, the ways in which they were misread, the ways in which some tried to um, reframe their earlier invo involvement, um, and how some didn't quite abandon their earlier ideas. I mean, Meunier, who became a respectable conservative writer after 1945, uh, never renounced his attachment to an imperial France or his opposition to communism, even if he refused the kind of anti-Semitism that other far-right intellectuals promoted in the late 1930s. Um, so, and, and even looking at the ways in which um, arguments about how literature cannot be reduced to his historical context is a way of addressing the 1930s and the memory of that, not just Vichy, but the ways in which literature was an eminently political act in the 1930s and mm. that debates proliferated over literature, over whether literature should be political, what it meant to be political? Should it remain divorced from the world of politics? What was the proper form of literature? What was the best form of literature? Um, where was the novel going? And, and what was a French novel? Um, and, and those discussions 
continued to echo and reverberate after Vichy. Um, and, and, and I think need to be, um, need to be revisited because I think they offer, um, they, they offer a different lens through which we can understand the complicated ways in which after 1945, um, in a, context of war with the Algerian war, the memory of Vichy was reworked, denied, and, um, and retold by, by those who came to occupy the world of intellectuals then. Mm-hmm. I, I want to come back to something, you just sort of reminded me of it, and to come back to something that you, you raised a little bit earlier, and that certainly runs throughout the book, and that is this kind of... Um, Connection. I think one of the most exciting interventions for me that you're making uh, with this book has to do with how we think about anti-Semitism in France with more nuance and complexity, given its relationship, which you you know point out is not parallel, but but imbricated with the the history of colonial racism. And uh, I'd, I'd like to hear you say more about how that uh, idea is developed in the book and and runs throughout the work of these intellectuals and writers that you're that you're treating. Well. To think about how these far-right intellectuals imagine what it meant to be French meant paying attention to the ways in which they imagined France. And what became very evident was that they imagined France as an empire. And when they denounced the decadence of France, they were also denouncing the fact that the empire was endangered. It was endangered by Jews in Algeria. It was endangered by those foreigners who were uprooting the very foundations of that greater France, which anchored that particular notion of Frenchness. So paying attention to this also meant um, thinking of anti-Semitism differently. On the one hand, some historians have argued that anti-Semitism was either anecdotal or an additive or just one part of this larger reactionary vision of French politics. Um, And on the other hand, um, historians of France in the 1930s, um, either of anti-Semitism or of colonialism, seem not to have spoken to one another. Yet, if you you read these texts that talk about um, what it means um, to be French, you can't help but be struck that their particular arguments about um, anti-Semitism is related to their desire to preserve and expound a colonial vision and a racist vision. So a lot of the arguments, notably in Je suis partout in the late 1930s, um, uh, centered around the need to preserve the empire. So many of these authors authors argued that um, if Jews were a danger, if Bloom, the head of the popular front, had um, was in danger of undoing France, it's because um, the popular front was not careful enough to ensure a proper French rule in the colonies. And that instead, as Brasillac famously wrote, um, to be French is to rule, and here I'm quoting, over 70 million people, including Arabs, including Africans. And Brasillac argued that 
Uh, we, meaning they, uh, these intellectuals, should lead the way. We should embrace anti-Semitic legislation because we should follow the instinctive, and this is his expression, anti-Semitism of our colonial subjects. They know intimately to be suspicious of the Jew. And in fact, it is the presence of Jews in our colonies that is wreaking havoc. And until we have control over that, we will essentially see disorder and chaos descend upon our glorious, beautiful colonies. And and that is the ways in which they justified their embrace of what Baziak called a reasoned and reasonable French anti-Semitism, one that was necessary and that was distinctly French. It was distinctly French because it was able to um, apply the rule of the law in the ways that French colonial subjects never could because those were um, unruly and irrational um, uh, beings in, in keeping with familiar colonial rhetoric. And um, on the other hand, it was distinctly French because uh, France needed a hierarchy in order to uh, be restored to its greatness. Um, the last part is that if you remember this obsession that these intellectuals had with abjection, the abjection of the French metropole, it's also important to pay attention that in these newspapers, um, the empire was important, not just because of political and economic reasons, but because they spoke of the empire as, again, a site of regeneration, a fantasy of an exotic, undisturbed peace and harmony where French citizens could find solace, comfort, and that reaffirmed their place within this hierarchical order. So the colonies also offered an answer to that sense of decadence and disgust um, in, in their imagination of what being French meant. And, and that, I think, is important. We need to rethink the history of anti-Semitism with an attention to this larger context of thinking about colonialism and thinking about race that permeated uh, French culture and politics in those years. Well, in your, and in your conclusion, Sandrine, you say something about the, how the 1930s, uh, I'm, I'm quoting here again, the vision of the nation that, that that haunts the politics of French history. And, you know, what you've just said makes me, you know, I have to ask you, okay, so how does the book then contribute to our contemporary understanding of how some of these issues, post-colonial racism, I suppose, um, and, and anti-Semitism, uh, issues of gender and sexuality and race and how these things are all connected and, and politics um, in contemporary France. How do you see the book as a contribution to that understanding? Well, what I hope is that the, the, the book suggests a way of thinking about um, those issues, not as separate, um, but instead of thinking um, about how um, historically the relationship between gender and sexuality and race get reconfigured through time and at different places. So to think right now of a post-colonial France where... Um, debates about a possible um, renewed French anti-Semitism, which is typically ascribed um, to uh, those French citizens of North African origin, really has a long history um, in, in the sense that I think, um, I think to be able to analyze 
um, the uh, imbrication of racism and anti-Semitism requires to think of those together. And, and I'll just give one example, a very recent example, which is the current debate in France right now over comic, uh, comedian, not comic, Dieudonné, who's mm. um, noted for his anti-Semitism, who's also been um, a, a powerful critic of uh, post-colonial um, racism, but who's also been associated with with very well-known figures of the far right. Um, and the ways in which I think to understand um, not just Dieudonné, but, but how to properly analyze these debates and, and, and the question posed by Dieudonné or the pervasive popularity and endurance of a certain far-right thinking in French politics means thinking more broadly about the ways in which those categories have tied. So, so Dieudonné, for instance, in his denunciation of a supposed um, a Jewish threat, is very striking through uh, the the ways in which he uses the rhetoric of gender and sexuality, of sodomy, of bodies that are being assaulted, um, of the need in, in, in ways that echo some of these long-standing far-right intellectuals, um, the, the need to um, to restore a bounded, firm national uh, national body, and 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 how to frame this, how to properly analyze this. But Yudhne is not the only one. I think I think there's work to be done in understanding and in revisiting the ways in which the far right in France has reinvented itself over time and how it has done so through um, through um, a reconfiguration of anti-Semitism and racism, sort of an inherited colonial racism at the heart of, of its thinking. And I think anyone who hears Marine Le Pen today um, mm. and knows some of these 1930s writers can hear echoes um, of this particular his history in what is being talked about. Now, of course, that that there's much more what one could say. I mean, I would I, I would also argue that to think of post-colonial racism um, also requires broadening um, broadening um, that frame. But but to give one last example, Henri Guénaud, who was um, Sarkozy's um, speechwriter, um, spoke about the National Front, the Front National, recently, um, arguing that this was really not the far right. They they may be hateful, they but but mm. they didn't have the specific features of a far-right movement. Um, and what was interesting about the ways in which he made that intervention is, I think, to be able to say this and thus legitimate the far-right requires forgetting a long tradition of far-right visions of the nation, of the place of citizens who are deemed foreign or suspect or racialized within it, and the ways in which the far-right has not always meant populist movements. It's also meant um, a distinctive intellectual tradition. Um, and that is a tradition that I've tried to um, reveal about in the 1930s. So to agree with Guinou is to forget what was written and what then was reworked um, from the 1930s onwards. So, so I, I do, and I think that is the hope of 
all historians, that without being presentist, we may offer a different way of asking questions about the past and illuminate the present differently. Mm, that's really fascinating. And, you know, now that you've brought up Marine Le Pen, it makes me think, you know, up until this last couple of minutes, we've been talking about men this entire time. And, and I'm just wondering about the period that you're talking about. Is there a way in which women, not just as sort of representations of some kind of, you know, uh, threatening femininity or something, but is there a way in which women contributed to these discourses in the period that you're writing about? Well, I, I think there is, and there has been work done on this that, that's been really interested I, because I, um, on the part of looking at Catholic women, mm. um, looking at, um, organizations or, um, uh, that were involved in the right-wing monarchist um, circle. So more of a social-cultural history of that mm. work. I, um, in terms of, of the world of literature, um, I think that the presence of women has been less striking. And, and that, to me, is is not a reflection on the absence of women. It really is because it is symptomatic of the ways in which the intellectuals I look at were especially intent on inhabiting and reimagining um, a world uh, of only men bound together by this homoerotic brotherhood. And that was mm. unperturbed by the presence of women, including the presence of women writers. So when some of them wrote about women writers, um, these were neither legitimate um, nor um, nor important in their world uh, in their world vision. But I also think there is there is much more work to be done on the 1930s itself, um, and that is being done now as well as um, as well as far right thought, both at the time and afterwards. Well, Sandrine, I've taken up a lot of your time, so I'd like to ask you one final question, which is, what are you working on now? Well, I'm, I'm working on a project that in many ways echoes some of these questions. It again touches upon the question of aesthetics and politics and again is interested in uh, tracing um, how uh, writers imagine themselves as gender subjects and imagine a different politics. But whereas my first book looked at the ways in which these writers turn to the aesthetics to exclude those they imagine deviant, my current books instead looks at those after 1945 who, um, who in fact used uh, difference and marginality to imagine a different politics um, and who more or less um, came um, from North Africa, the Caribbean, or were, um, had experienced um, the Holocaust and were at odds within the political and literary uh, world of the time, and yet tried to suggest a different, a different vision of what it meant to be French um, that was at odds with um, the far left that we know and that tried to critique what had come before. So it is, again, a... Um, an examination of the ways in which writers, authors, singers even reimagined um, the political in their writings um, and through the aesthetic. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project, and I hope I'll get a chance to 
to talk to you about it when it comes out in, in new book form. Something I just want to say thanks so much for joining me and for taking the time to, to, to speak with me and for, and for writing this really fascinating book. Thank you very much, Roxanne. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you'll join us again next time.